0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Hundreds of bills die each year at the Colorado Capitol. Most of these defeats don't take place on the House or Senate floor. Instead, measures tend to die in what insiders call a kill committee. CPR's Sam Brash takes us inside these
1: legislative slaughterhouses. Introduction of bills. Before we get into how bills die, let's talk about how they're born. After a lawmaker submits a measure, a reading clerk introduces it in the House or the Senate.
2: And I know, this sounds like the
1: world's most boring auction. But what happens next is crucial to a bill's chances. In Colorado, every measure must get a hearing and an up or down vote. That's why legislative leaders, like Senate President (laughs) Kevin Grantham, assign each and every bill to a committee. Some go to transportation, others to ag, to resources and energy. But one committee assignment is feared above all others. State veterans and military first. Groans are a common reaction to that committee assignment, and for good reason. Republicans control the Senate and Democratic bills face a pretty standard outcome.
3: No. Senate Bill 40 fails, 3-2. Senate Senate Senate
1: Bill 58 fails on a 3-2. Senator Sonno and Senate Bill 89 is lost. The committee has voted down 80% of the Democratic bills it's heard so far this session. And don't assume this is just a Republican practice. Democrats control the House and play the same game. No. And that motion fails three to six. And that motion fails three to five. And that motion fails three to six. 86 percent of Republican bills have died in the House committee so far this year. So what earns a bill a place in the so-called kill committee? Senate President Kevin Grantham says some legitimately have to do with state, veterans, or military affairs. But not all of them. There are certain bills that are philosophically untenable for us and There has to be a place for that to go without turning everything into a circus. And to put it another way, Grantham often sends bills he doesn't like to the committee and trusts members on the panel to block them. But still gets the
4: same fair hearing as it would in any other committee.
1: Invariably, you get that quote, it will have a full and fair hearing. Well, you know, with a wink and a nod, maybe. That's Democratic Senator Andy Kerr. Many of his bills, like a proposal to fund full-day kindergarten, have died in the Senate State Affairs Committee. And Kerr points out that the committee plays another role. It's their job to jump on potential political grenades before they reach the House or Senate floor. That way, lawmakers in vulnerable districts don't have to take as many controversial votes. All you have to do is, is look at the legislators who sit on state affairs, both Democrats and Republicans in the Senate and the House, and you will always find people from safe districts. So I did. In the House and the Senate, lawmakers on each committee mostly won their races by 20 to 30 points, if not more. These are districts where your voting record really only matters to the the voters in your own party. In other words, the legislature's appointed executioners don't have to worry about re-election, and the ones who do don't have to worry about taking as many tough stances. Mark Ferrandino is a former Democratic Speaker of the House and says, yeah, that's basically
5: how it works you had safer members from both parties who would be assigned to it and be able to take the tough votes on difficult political situations.
1: Ferrandino remembers one example from his tenure. In 2014, Republicans pushed for Jessica's Law, which would have set strict mandatory sentences for sex offenders. They said it would have deterred crimes against kids. But Ferrandino says it was bad policy and an attempt to smear Democrats.
5: They want all of our members on record so they can do a mailer against it. We'll make sure it doesn't get into a committee where people who are in tough situations in elections are going to have to vote on something that is not really about policy. It's really about politics.
1: The bill died in state affairs. Terrence Carroll is another former Democratic Speaker of the House, and he says he knows the practice isn't pretty.
4: Nobody wants to think that some bill... It's someplace where it's intended for it never to see the light of day beyond the committee. You don't want to think that government works that way, but it does.
1: At the end of the day, Carol says lawmakers want to make good policy, but they also have to play politics. And kill committees are just good defense. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
0: Well, Colorado lawmakers are pretty experienced with these kill committees. In almost all other states in Congress, lawmakers can smother a bill before a word of debate. The reason Colorado is different is because a part of the state's constitution called the Gavel Amendment, which turns 30 this year, Sam Brash is here to explain how this all works. Hey, Sam. Hey, Nathan. What's the Gavel Amendment, and how does it play into what we just heard?
1: Right. So really simply, the Gavel Amendment requires that every bill introduced at the Colorado legislature gets a public hearing and an up or down vote. That's why kill committees are so important in Colorado. But it also checks the power of legislative majorities. When it passed in 1988, it completely reorganized the Colorado General Assembly. And while I would love to explain how... I found someone who's much more fit for the job. My name's Wayne Knox. I'm 90 years old now. I met up with Wayne at his senior living center in South Denver.
4: And I served in the uh, legislature for 32 years, uh, 16 terms. And I think that's a record in the House in terms of length.
1: It is a record. Knox will likely hold it, too, into the foreseeable future, since lawmakers now have to face strict term limits. And Knox was the first person to propose gavel, and he spearheaded the ballot initiative to pass it in 1988. Well,
0: what kind of a lawmaker was
1: Knox? Well, he was a Democrat. He was a part-time teacher. And during his tenure, Republicans controlled the Capitol almost the entire time. He spent his career in the minority.
4: So a lot of my history is being the the true dissenter uh, pointing out what's wrong with bills and things
1: like that. And there was one practice that really just bugged Knox. Knox would come up with a bill idea and he would introduce it in the chamber. Then it would be assigned to a committee assembled by the Speaker of the House. And at the time, the committee chair could have the power to block any bill. And he could
4: put it in his desk and
1: Just forget about it. Walk me through that one more time. So the committee chair would literally take the bill and put it in the... Yes. Yes. Literally. (laughs) Literally. So there are rumors that hardline committee chairs would have desks overflowing Mm -hmm. with Democratic bills. Minority ideas would pile up and pile up and pile up. They would never be debated. They would never come up for a vote. And all the lawmakers' work, all the work they put into a bill would be for nothing. All
0: right. So how did that lead to the government?
1: So there was this one moment in 1987 where the Republicans, who held the majority, really pushed the limits of their power. House Republicans met and voted for a conceptual budget outline, not a final budget. But when the final budget was revealed, it slashed many popular programs. And since Republicans had already voted for it um, and promised how they would vote for it in what's called the Binding Caucus.
4: They happened to meet on St. Patrick's Day, and so we're re- referred to it
0: as the St. Patrick's Day Massacre. So all of these popular programs were slashed, right? So what did the Democrats think?
1: Uh, they were upset the move was just too much for many Democrats and other groups outside the Capitol, like the League of Women Voters. And they decided the answer was to change how the legislature works. One of Knox's collaborators came up with a pretty clever name for that effort, the Gavel Amendment.
4: Gavel was an acronym standing for Give a Vote to Every Legislator.
1: Pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. What did Gavel do specifically? So I'm going to have Wayne help me break this down. Here's what Gavel requires. One, every bill should have a vote. So remember how committee chairs would stash Knox's bills Mm -hmm. in their desks? No more of that. Every bill had to be heard and voted on.
4: Two, we'll eliminate the Rules Committee.
1: So the Rules Committee was like a super kill committee. Even if a bill survived one hearing, it had to face another chaired by the Speaker of the House. And he would consistently block minority bills. That was over.
4: And three, uh, eliminate binding party caucuses.
1: In other words, Colorado lawmakers actually have to hear legislation and then decide a vote. They can't promise a position beforehand in a caucus.
0: It sounds like this was an effort to take control for the majority party. The majority sets the committees, uh, the committees killed the bills. So Knox just wanted to make sure his party had a chance to get their ideas out there to the full legislature.
1: Yeah, exactly. And at first, Knox tried to pass Gavel in the legislature, but Republicans defeated it. So he decided to push for a ballot initiative. And he found that it wasn't just Democrats who were upset about how the legislature worked.
4: You know, lots of groups or people that had had been victims of the non-action legislation that they supported that had been introduced, had not been acted on,
1: People like gas station attendants who had seen a bill they supported smothered at the legislature before a debate. Other groups had similar experiences of seeing their laws fail without a discussion, so Knox assembled a wide bipartisan political coalition. Volunteers started gathering signatures outside of King Superstores, on sidewalks, and they gained support really quickly, so fast that no one really put up an opposition. Uh, things worked out
4: for us, and in the general election, We've passed Gavel by a significant margin.
1: 44 points, actually. Gavel passed 72 to 28, so it had wide bipartisan support in Colorado. CONSTITUTIONAL AMENDMENTS uh, CAN HAVE A HUGE AND
0: RAPID EFFECT Mm -hmm. IN COLORADO. WE KNOW THAT FROM TABOR AND THE AMENDMENT TO LEGALIZE MARIJUANA. SO HOW QUICKLY DID GAVEL ACTUALLY CHANGE THE LEGISLATURE?
1: IT CHANGED IT IMMEDIATELY. AND THIS IS THE KIND OF QUESTION THAT POLITICAL SCIENTISTS ABSOLUTELY LOVE BECAUSE IT SET UP KIND OF AN EXPERIMENT. THE LEGISLATURE WORKED ONE WAY ONE SESSION AND THEN IT TOTALLY TRANSFORMED THE NEXT SESSION. Political scientists from San Diego State University studied what actually changed at the legislature, and they found that gabbel gave more power to centrist lawmakers because they could run bills without worrying about what party leaders thought of it, either in caucuses or ahead of a committee vote. But the leaders also adjusted. Instead of pocket vetoes, which is when they would slide those bills into a desk, they turned to other methods to block bills before they reached the floor. That's why kill committees are such an important tool for lawmakers today.
0: 30 years later, how do lawmakers see gavel? Is it something they like, or do they see it as a cumbersome limitation on their power?
1: Uh, Most lawmakers like it. Mm. I asked former Speaker of the House Mark Ferrandino about gavel, and he knows that legislative leaders in other states, and especially legislative leaders in Congress, can set their legislative priorities far more than he ever could.
5: If I sat as Speaker still, I would love to have that power. I actually think it's better for democracy that every bill you introduce gets the ability to have a up or down hearing and people get to voice their concerns and voice their opinions on it. And then legislators, whether it's whatever committee, are going to be held accountable for their votes on that legislation.
1: Ferrandino also sees Knox as really a model lawmaker. Rather than jostle over the levers of power, Knox found a way to create more levers. He found a way to change democracy.
5: The most important thing we can do is protect the institutions of democracy because when we lose faith in those, we lose our ability to actually govern ourselves and we lose our democracy.
1: Republicans have also learned to like Gavel. Democrats now dominate the Colorado House of Representatives, and that means Gavel now ensures that Republican ideas will be at least heard and debated. What about Wayne Knox? What are his thoughts looking back on all this? I asked Knox the same thing. How would you encourage people to think about what happened in 1988.
4: Well, I think what's important is that people can make a change.
1: And he says those changes happen when people are upset. Knox was able to push gavel only after enough people were upset with the legislature. So he's encouraged to see a lot of Americans angry with their government. He hopes hopes that they harness those emotions not just to change who's in power, but also to change how power is wielded.
0: All right. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Sam Brash covers the Capitol for CPR News. We spoke about Colorado's gavel amendment, which turned 30 this year. Well, there's a pretty good chance you've heard this song. Son of a bitch! It's SOB by one of Colorado's greatest musical success stories, Nathaniel Rateliff. The singer and guitarist spent more than a decade building up a large dedicated fan base here. But it was this song of his 2015 self-titled debut album, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, that propelled the band to worldwide fame. The group is back with a new album, Tearing at the Seams, which is out today. Nathaniel joins me along with bassist Joseph Pope. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Good to be here. Great to be here. Take us back to your breakout appearance on the Jimmy Fallon show, uh, the tonight show in 2015. What was going through your minds when the band got that standing ovation and rave reviews from Jimmy Fallon? Tell me about that.
2: Uh, I actually remember the during the show and being backstage and getting makeup put on and, uh, Jimmy kept, uh, sort of like showing the record and playing the song. And I remember sitting there with our publicists and, um, the ladies doing makeup, I was like, is this good? They're like, yeah, this doesn't ever happen. Um, and then when we went out to perform, I didn't really know what to think other than, you know, it's a pretty small audience. So I just think of it as like playing to that audience. Um, not the, not the millions watching mm-hmm. on television. Yeah. I never think of it that way. So, um, but then, you know, I, uh, I, I didn't even think that it, it was a standing ovation. I just thought everybody got up and clapped. So <laughs>
3: Well, yeah, we'd never done anything like that really. And, uh, it was very awkward almost because he was so, he was pumping it so much and, and, but we had never, we didn't have any point of reference, you know? So when everybody stood up at the end, like we didn't know that that wasn't normal, but I think we knew that we had um, gone and done what we wanted to do there. And that really set in over the next 12 hours or so, as we kind of talked to people back here in Denver and kind of talked to them about their experience of that experience. And and it was, uh, it was really overwhelming.
0: When things really began to take off, Uh, were you surprised or were you just like, it's about time,
2: you know? Uh, No, it was a surprise. And even with this record, uh, how the first single just done well, it's still a surprise. I, you know, never really have. For years, we've always tried to make records that we really cared about. And um, sometimes those just don't connect with everybody. And so there's no guarantee that this one will either. So it's just always,
3: it's really just a surprise. And uh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, we were no more or less excited about this record than we were about anything else we had done so there was
0: really there was really no thought like i've been doing this for 20 plus years this is finally a well i'm
2: still waiting for my finally moment (laughs) uh,
0: when i like build a pool with a waterfall or something (laughs) i don't know
2: Uh,
0: Uh, let's hear the first single from your new album tearing at the seams called you worry me Daniel, the last line of this song, I'm going to leave it all out there to dry. I'm going to leave it all out there to dry up, but you worry me. Is there a backstory there? It, it seems pretty vulnerable at that, that line.
2: Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think uh, I wrote a lot about uh, things that were going on in my personal life for this record, but try to change the narrative enough so it would connect, hopefully, to other people who are listening. Um, How so? Well, I just want people to, to... I connect to music in the way I think... Uh, I don't want to be too presumptuous, but I think we all connect to music in a way that's a little outside of ourselves. And I'd like to be able to make music that people feel that way. That w- when I listen to a song, I feel moved, and sometimes feel like that the the person who's writing and singing is singing to me or singing about me. And so I I would hope, you know, well, without sounding too arrogant, that I could come across doing the same thing. So
0: do do all the songs have a personal uh, bit for you, or or? I think there's personal bits in all
2: of it. I've always kind of written that way, but like I said, I try to change it enough so it's uh, not just,
3: like, too much
2: about me. So. Yeah.
3: Well, because it's not, essentially, I think that part of the beauty of this record that we feel as a band is that Nathaniel's writing was able to kind of broaden in a way because of the growth we had had as a band over the last three years. And it was something that although we've had lots of bands um in this town, and and lots of core members for a long time, there was something different happening here, and and um, I think that uh, I think the the content of what Nathana was writing about lyrically is like everybody in the band can identify with in their own way, um, and even if we all were part of a lot of the experiences he was going through and might know some of some of the things going on, it's um, I mean. You know, we're not reinventing the wheel here either. We're just living the life that everybody else is trying to live. And, you know, I've always thought, like, if you're feeling something, um, the odds are pretty good somebody else out there in the world is feeling it too, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, we definitely were feeling something as a band. And ultimately, that's kind of what we were trying to capture, you know.
0: The band wrote and recorded much of tearing in, uh, at the seams in a town in southwestern New Mexico called Rodeo. There's about 100 people living in that town. How did you guys find yourself there in Rodeo? Um, well, we, we didn't have much time off to write or anything. So
2: we had at first point like two weeks and I thought we were going to go down. Well, at first to the ocean was what I wanted to do and just kind of create our own environment and get away from distraction and just be there as a band with each other and, uh, kind of kick around all the ideas that I collected and see if we'd come up with some more together. But then our time in New Mexico only ended up being a week and we came up with 11 songs down there, which not all of those ended up on the record, actually. Uh, there's quite a few that didn't. Um,
3: but we just kind of ended up out of uh, down there because we ended up getting another show in the middle of those two weeks that we had to take. You know, we also didn't go out there necessarily trying to record the record. We were kind of trying to woodshed, and we brought Jamie Mefford, who runs Front of House mm. for us, who's who's a Colorado guy at this point. I mean, we claim mm. him as a Missouri boy. But, uh, you know, he's worked with Gregory Allen as a lots of other folks, and us in the past. But we just set up a studio to kind of try to work together in, in a new way you know embrace this band and, and Nathaniel trying to write with the band kind of present you know and um, and actually the fact that we came out with four tunes I think that essentially made it on the record from that session was well, hey mama and you worry me yeah I think it was it was like I can't going out yeah yeah like the, the bones or the whole songs were kind of kind of done there and
0: so place is a really important part of, of the song making process it seems. Not really. It's no. mostly like it, it's nice, you know. So the bold, open spaces and stuff.
3: And well, that's great. Yeah, yeah that definitely I mean, like, played into you it. You end but... up
2: spending a lot of time in a room. Right. <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> that makes
0: sense. Yeah. Um, it was a pretty windy desert. I wasn't out there with a notebook <laughs> and was blowing pages around. But This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Nathaniel Ratliff, band leader of the Night Sweats, and bassist Joseph Pope. Their latest album is out today. Nathaniel, the debut Night Sweats album was based on demo recordings that you made alone. But for tearing at the seams, you've emphasized the role that the other seven members of the band played writing this music. Why was it so important to get the whole band involved? Well,
2: we've just we've become a band over the last three years, and as many shows as we played together, you know, we we've, we've learned how to. We've just changed as musicians, and we've really become a band, and it was important to have that on the record for me and it's important for like the guys to feel like they're artistically involved as well and and I wanted to I feel like the the sum of us was greater than just me by myself you know that what they contribute is just an equally as important as me writing so
0: did this one feel different for you Joseph?
3: it felt completely different from any project you know right. for, um, that I've worked on with Nathaniel and you know we've had amazing bands in the past and together um, full of amazing people that are you know, one of them is my wife, and you know, lots of other people. Um, but there was something. There's something different happening now for us, and I think it really just has to do with the work and the amount of work that we were able to do, and we were fortunate enough to to have out there. That um, and the willingness, and also, you know, we're not 20. And when Nathaniel talks about everybody wanting to feel like this is something that's valuable in their life and in their future, you know, when you're 20, like you have a different kind of hope about things like things are going to work out in a different sure. way and you know but we, we're we all we're really trying to make it go together and we care a lot about each other's individual lives and you know going into the studio and feeling that way about people um, I think has an influence on what comes out of the studio and, and we felt that way about the people in the past but it's just uh, we've been able to, to kind of turn some kind of corner
0: well let's hear some more music uh, from the new album Tearing at the Seams this is Cooling Out
2: I've been i no.
0: Your band has basically toured nonstop for the last two years, but people do see you around Denver. You're, you're taking in shows. You're, you're seen around around the local scene. You still do Red Rocks. You've got the holiday shows you do in December. How do you manage with your really tight schedule to stay involved in Denver to keep coming back here and and making appearances? Well, it's still home
2: for us, and uh, you know I. I feel like you know the the people who were with us for all these years, who all the different projects are as much a part of this band as we are. Sometimes you know, and um, so it's in some ways I I regret I don't have more time to be here and uh, and you know miss miss all my friends and uh, miss being able to hang out at the High Dive and and that neighborhood and uh, you know that's my family, my community, and my neighborhood.
3: So. Yeah, it's it's uh it's interesting to have like reach uh something that you've been really trying to get a place you've been trying to get to and then realize what the the downsides of that are which are that you're not at the place that helped you get there very often you know but we know that this is not gonna be like this forever no matter how how we get to continue to do it you know Mm -hmm. um and so hopefully someday we'll be able to be back here a little bit more often
0: where's your favorite spot in denver to take in a show? I mean, I really like being band. in my house right now. <laughs> you're like you're like my house. <laughs>
2: uh, I mean, Red Rocks is always amazing, but uh, you know, the Ogden's always really good. Just for like, you know, it's nice, reasonable sound and a reasonable sized room. Gothic too.
3: We can't really be uh, objective here though, because any place I mention, I have. I mean, I remember the first time we played at Lions Lair is "Born in the Flood" and. Yeah. We worked at trucking companies. I worked at SIA Motor Freight, and my terminal manager came down. and Hours after the show was supposed to start, he said, "Hey, where's the? What's going on?" And we're waiting for the sound guy. And turns out the sound guy had been passed up behind the soundboard for the entire <laughs> the time, time we'd been there, and nobody knew. Uh, but you know, there's, there's, we have like so many personal connections to a lot of these yeah. places, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's, we love it here so much, and it's really great to see that, uh, you know, obviously things are has nothing to do with us, but to come back and kind of try to catch up and, and see, like, the energy that's being perpetuated here by folks and, um, you know, doesn't seem like it's slowing down.
0: Nathaniel, you appeared on the final studio album from rock and roll legend uh, Chuck Berry, singing on the single uh, Big Boys. I want to hear a bit of that right now. I was I think it'd be fair to say that Barry's music is an influence uh, on yours, uh, is a big influence of yours. What was the significance of working on that record with him?
2: Well, I would say Chuck Berry is an influence on all of rock and roll and is the, you know, the godfather of it and the king of rock and roll, not Elvis. Mm -hmm. Um... And, uh, you know, I his influence to me, sort of like, one, he's from Missouri, and uh, my parents and aunts and uncles all grew up hanging out at Berry Park. And so to be able to play on the record was just like, uh, my mom was like, you know, your dad would have never believed it. Son was playing with old Barry, Mr. Berry's, on uh, Mr. Barry's songs, so. Um, but, yeah, you know, his, like, sort of, um, you know, his sort of, like, country approach to rock and roll and that um, you know, and and just the way he crossed over into so many different things uh, has always been an influence to me. So
0: how did it all come together?
2: Uh, you know, we just randomly got a call, and they had no idea that like my family had any connection to you know uh, Barry Park or anything like that. So. so
0: one of his people said, "Like this guy's got the sound we want to have." And...
2: Uh, yeah, I think you know, there's uh, there was a few different players on that record and on on that particular track, and I don't know who all ended up on there. I think. Tom Morello was supposed to be on it and Bruce Springsteen was supposed to be a part of it at yeah. one point. But.
3: We also don't know who said no before they uh, you said yes, you know. <laughs> yeah, You <laughs> could have been way down the list. We have no idea. Yeah, Check that <laughs> off, check that off. Okay, well, let's try to figure it like,
2: All right, we've got 150 calls. There's this guy, <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe
3: or something Yeah, he was like in that. the Harry Potter movies, yeah, right? He's
2: got a song about...
0: Anyway, it does sound really good. And and is that a big memory for you to have? Uh, Because he he passed away shortly after that. I unfortunately
2: didn't get the opportunity to work personally with Mr. Berry. uh, But since, uh, you know, been blessed with being able to like, uh, you know, be with his family um, uh, for his funeral service in Missouri. And uh, also be a part of a couple of things with them and just – Get to know some of them, and that's been a real blessing. So, that's as close as I could get to them, but uh, you know, it's a real honor either way.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thank you.
2: Hey, mama, oh, it's me. Sitting been a way, child. Sitting been a long time, better sit down Can't listen when the sun's out My only son, this'll be so hard to
0: hear The new album from Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, Tearing at the Seams, is out today. The band performs two shows at Red Rocks Amphitheater this August. check out the band's recent session in the CPR Performance Studio, head to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Why you going to wait so long? Why? Olympian Lauren Gibbs was a sales manager in Denver until someone at her CrossFit gym told her she should try bobsledding. Well, she did, and now, four years later, she's a silver medalist. Gibbs won with Alana Myers-Taylor. She joins me now by phone. Welcome, Lauren, and congratulations.
6: Thanks so
0: much. So uh, where is this medal going to live? Uh, do you have a special place laid out in your home for it?
6: That's funny. That's like the first thing everybody <laughs> asks. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people don't know this at most, Olympic athletes or Olympic hopefuls don't have permanent residences because it just doesn't make sense to have a place where you're only there half of the year. So oh. right now, it's sitting in this little wooden case traveling with me from appearance to appearance. As you can imagine, when you win a medal, everybody wants to, to hold it and touch it. Um, my parents ask me the same thing. They live in L.A., so they're hoping I leave it here. But um, I'll probably keep it on me for the first year or so.
0: And, and so is it a heavy thing? I mean, is it something that, that you're like, wow, this is, this is heavier than I thought it was going to be?
6: It's incredibly heavy, and I looked at the weight the other day. I think it's 583 grams, and I have a pretty sore neck thanks to it, but uh, I'll take the sore neck for
0: sure. Now, your performance at the Olympics earned you a silver medal, but apparently the margin of time between your runs and the team that won gold is the smallest margin ever in an Olympic women's bobsled race. Was that tough to I swallow? I didn't know
6: that. <laughs> you know, it, I think it, you know, it's always tough to swallow, I think, when you— put down a really good performance and you don't come away with first place. I think you know, everybody goes to the Olympics wanting to win that gold medal. And that was definitely our plan and our goal. And, and going into that last run, I, I really thought we had it, um, you know, but I, I'm really proud of uh, the Germans. You know, the nice thing about competing in the Olympics is we compete against each other year in and year out. And Mario Yama Yamaka put down an incredible performance and, That's all you can ask is to to give the best performance of your career. And I think we did that, or at least for myself, I I did that. You know, Alana has three Olympic medals, so I'm sure she has, (laughs) uh, you know, three incredible Olympic performances. But that's that's really all I I could ask of myself is just I didn't I never wanted to be a hindrance to her. And I I wanted to add to the performance. And I think I did that. And so, you know, I'm I'm pretty pleased with, with walking away with the medal.
0: So how did you get connected with Alana Myers-Taylor? Like you said, she's done this before, and you're, you're relatively new, I guess.
6: Yeah, you know, I, I by, in, in her standards, you know, this being her third Olympics and this being my first, I'm definitely a rookie. I started four years ago. It, it was just one of those things where I was, you know, coming back from work, and I was working out at Front Range CrossFit, and my good friend Jill Potter, who is uh, a 2016 Olympian, and she wasn't an Olympian at the, at the time, it was 2014 was just asking some of my my lifting stats. You know, she asked how much I could uh, back squat and deadlift and if I could sprint. And then she said, you know, I think you should try bobsled. And, you know, my first, I think, response was, people don't actually do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they had just come off of winning two medals in Sochi. So, you know, I never thought it was possible, but... I, uh, there was a a tryout down in the Springs and I'd never been to an Olympic training center before. So I thought, Hey, what the heck? I'll check it out. And there'll be a funny story to tell, tell to the office on Monday.
0: But you, you got into it and you fell in love with it and you met and you joined this team. Yeah. Yep. So take us, take us to the first like 30 seconds on the track. You're getting ready to go. You hear things going, what is going through your mind and how in tune are you with your teammates?
6: Are you talking about at the Olympics? Yeah,
0: yeah, or just any run in general.
6: Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's funny because going into the Olympics, I just, I wanted to make sure that, you know, because people always try and tell you what it's going to feel like and what it's going to be like at the Olympics. It's going to be louder. It's going to be, you're going to be more nervous. It's going to be different, you know, different challenges are going to come up. So I think throughout the four years, uh, my goal was to always think to myself as I got set on the line, like, what if this was the Olympics? Like, you know, pretend act is every day as the Olympics and obviously not every day was the Olympics, but at every competition, I was like, all right, this is the fourth run of the Olympics. So I think that helped a lot. One, we had slid on that track before. Um, and two, like I said, we compete against the same girls year in and year out and three, you know, I just, I really felt like I, I put everything and invested everything monetarily, body wise, nutrition wise, you know, training wise to prepare for this one event. And so it was really nice. You know, it was, normal level of nerves uh, in any competition you know just adrenaline going but I definitely wasn't nervous I knew what I needed to get done and uh, I knew what my job was and, and we had practiced this uh, many times and so I was just excited it was exciting to you know I had 17 people there supporting me so it was exciting because most of the for most of the people it was the first time they'd ever seen a bobsled race and definitely the first time they'd ever seen me compete in the sport of bobsled
0: is there an unspoken language you all have when you're running down or you're going on this run? Do you, do you, do you touch each other? Do you talk to each other? How does this work?
6: Yeah, it's funny. There's definitely, there's definitely like some, you know, just unspoken chemistry that happens when you you step out on that field, you know, or on the ice, I guess it's not really a field, but (laughs) so we do something called a connected start because, because it's, it can be really loud at, at bobsled races. And this is funny because I think this is the one where it actually quieted it down when we got ready to go uh, which was funny because I expected people just to be screaming the entire time. But uh, I think people were respectful of, you know, we were, we we're trying to get set and ready. So, you know, every driver is a little bit different. And with the women's bobsled team, there's such a breadth of talent on the team that we switch pilots back and forth. So every pilot has, like, their high five that they do and their preparation. And then the brakeman, which is my position, will get down and we'll say set. And then after that, there's really no talking because we don't know how loud it's going to be. And then the pilot gets down and gets set and their signal to us that they're ready is that they put their left hand out and once their left hand is out um it's the break and show from there until we get into the sled so you know i fall i start i initiate the movement and i fall forward and then she matches my body movement and then we hit the sled and go
4: and then
6: i hop in after that
0: like a ballet it seems like you guys have a, a, a very ballet thing going there
6: yeah absolutely
0: well thanks so much for joining us
6: thanks for having me
0: Olympic bobsledder Lauren Gibbs just returned home to Denver with a silver medal. When you ski groomed snow that looks like corduroy, you can thank the late Steve Bradley. In 1951, he invented the Bradley Packer Grader. These human-powered machines smoothed the slopes at Winter Park and were the precursors to today's giant snow cats. Bradley led Winter Park for decades, and his daughter Kat Bennett of Longmont spoke with Ryan Warner about her dad. Welcome to the
7: program.
8: Thank you for having me.
7: So your father was the first executive director of Winter Park. Did you get to spend a lot of time there as a kid growing up?
8: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We grew up in Boulder. My dad had been at CU getting his master's in painting. And okay. <laughs> and no, not, not the route I expected. No, but he was a true Renaissance man. When he got his master's, George Cramner from the city of Denver approached him and said, we really need somebody to help us developed this ski area that we have called Winter Park. It was then running a huge deficit for the city of Denver, and they wanted to really build it up into a good ski area.
7: I think Cranmer was head of Parks and Rec, He,
8: right? Uh, That's right. He was head of Parks and Rec. And, and of course, there's a slope named after him, one of my favorites. And up to that point, my dad was a phenomenal watercolor painter. He had two agents. As soon as he took that job at Winter Park... That became his canvas. He didn't really do that much painting after that.
7: Well, oh, I like that you think of snow as his canvas. What qualified him to be approached by the director of parks?
8: Yeah, well, he was one of seven Bradley brothers who were pretty famous for skiing. Dad was a four- skilled athlete. He did Nordic, he did the Alpine, he did slalom, giant slalom, he was a jumper. He did it all. He was a lettered athlete. So there was this notoriety that kind of followed him to Colorado and George Cramner knew about him. The other thing was that while he was at CU getting his masters, he volunteered to coach the CU ski team. And oh. built yep. And built some ski jumps up on Chautauqua in Boulder. I don't think they're there anymore. I think yeah. they've been long since disappeared. <laughs> yeah.
7: Tell us about that first snow grooming machine that your dad built, the Bradley Packer Grader.
8: Yeah. So what's really interesting is that he took the job um, in 1950...
7: To manage Winter Park. To
8: manage Winter Park. And he filed his patent for the Bradley Packer Grader in 51. Now, at that point, I'm only three years old. But I do remember... He filed his patent, but he had a man named George Underwood, who was just head of all maintenance at Winter Park, working on this thing. And he and my older brother, Dan, would go into the shop at night after dinner, and they would work on this thing. And Dan said there was no shortage of expletives coming from George (laughs) Underwood's mouth, but probably around the time I was Five, maybe five or six, dad decided it was time to take this thing that he had designed that had a big blade to cut the mogul and these big, this big roller behind it with these laminated slats of wood and take it down the practice slope at Winter Park. So he took it up the T-bar for the practice slope. Yeah, because
7: a, it let's be clear, there aren't chairlifts at this point. Right, yeah. oh,
8: right, right, right. There were just a couple, a few T-bars and it maybe it's still been a rope tow then. So our house was old WPA barracks, and they were. it was right at the bottom of the practice slope. So we could sit in the living room and look out our big picture window and see what was coming down the practice slope. So Dad planned this for a time when the area was closed. There was nobody else on the slope but him. And he got off that T-bar and he started bringing this thing down the practice slope and it slowly started coming apart. And by the time he was at the bottom of the practice slope, it was in little pieces all over the
7: slope. This was an early version, (laughs) I suppose. This was
8: his first prototype. Let's be
7: clear. This is a groomer that is not powered by diesel or powered by electricity. It was powered by a skier. Right. Serving as like the sled dog.
8: Exactly. Well, that was the only time. That I remember, it totally fell apart. It was back to the drawing room, more expletives from George Underwood. But he finally got that thing working. And they weighed about 700 pounds.
7: Oh, so 700 pounds of machine behind you as you ski. Behind you,
8: going downhill on snow. So you've got gravity, and you've got the slippery surface behind you, but it had a braking system. And the guys that used these, Dad actually called them his pilots, his jet pilots. And some of them went so far as to paint flames on their helmets because they knew. And they got hazard pay for oh, working these things.
7: Did people get seriously injured no. by them? No. 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 Okay. We,
8: I, we, and not that I know. We never had an injury.
7: There is an image of this early... Snow Groomer at CPR.org.
8: The guys on slope maintenance who operated that machine were just, they were dad's heroes because they were so gifted. And they'd come down the slope in a V. Oh, it
7: was like a flock of them all grooming the hill together as a team.
8: Yes. Yes. So the actual operator, the pilot he was in a very wide snowplow. They had to make sure that they could maintain speed and they did so have their, their skis rink.
7: pointed inwards so that right. they weren't whizzing down the hill right. with this 700 pound contraption.
8: Now he had them in operation for a pretty short time and he realized that what was happening was that blade was really, it was really cutting the tops of the moguls and the roller was breaking it down, but not enough. So he just ingeniously took a Big long piece of chain link fencing, and hmm. then dragged that behind the packer grader, so that was the final treatment that the snow would get, and then it was like velvet, and that's what I loved. I loved skiing down Cramner or Phipps after those guys had been down there because it was. It, my brother called it like a ballroom, <laughs> like a ballroom, yeah.
7: uh, easy to maneuver over. Elegant surface. Yes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about early snow grooming in Colorado. Cat Bennett's father, Steve Bradley, invented the Bradley Packer Grader, which a skier would tow behind him or her to groom the snow. Was Winter Park really popular at this time?
8: Oh, highly popular. Okay. We, well, we had the ski train. And that was amazing. It would come up on Wednesdays. And we always called that the physician's train because doctors would take a day off to go skiing on Wednesdays. (laughs) And then, of course, it went up on Saturdays and Sundays. It was very, very popular.
7: On a more serious (laughs) note, your father was a ski area consultant after he left Winter Park. Yeah. And I understand that he testified in a negligence case against Alaska's Alieska Ski Resort. He did. So a young man there had hit a tree while skiing and was paralyzed yeah. the accident happened on an artificially lit slope correct what was your father's take when he testified
8: so he was asked by the man's the young man's lawyer to go up and give his professional opinion was this sufficiently lit and what my father discovered was the lighting had been so poorly designed that and given this is in December, so in December in Alaska, it's pitch black at mid-afternoon.
7: Right. It doesn't have to be night in order to be dark.
8: It is dark up there, right. So what he determined was when you were coming down the slope where the, or in this ridge where this young man was, he was just actually really on a catwalk going from the slope to the lift. Oh. And he was on a ridge that he couldn't see because the lights were in his eyes, rather than shining down where he should have been, and it was an ungroomed catwalk. So dad was there. He went up in the summer, and he stood there with a lawyer, and the lawyer asked him, so in your opinion was this negligence? And my dad said, no, this was murderous, and if they don't change it, somebody could die.
7: Somebody could die.
8: And in fact, somebody did die some years later, and dad refused to testify on that case.
7: Right. Aliaska lost, and he'd gotten backlash for testifying earlier.
8: Correct. So what happened was it turned out that the insurance company that covered Alieska was the same insurance company that was covering Winter Park. Oh. So now Dad has retired at this point. He's just operating as a consultant. The insurance company put pressure on the manager of Winter Park to... Convinced Dad not to testify. Well, what sort of. You don't
7: testify against your own.
8: Right. You don't testify against your own. So what happened was it came not just from Winter Park, but it came from other peers of his in the Colorado ski industry, and it was such an unpleasant experience that when the second case happened, and this involved the death of an eleven-year-old boy, and it was severe negligence on the part of the ski area. And I think it was just too much for him to bear emotionally. And he didn't testify in that second case.
7: Uh, How much opportunity did you have later in life to ski with your dad?
8: Oh, he was great. He was so fun to ski with. He was six foot two, And his whole reason for inventing the Packer Grader, this is what he would tell people. He would say, I'm six foot two. It takes a long time for the signal to get from my brain to my feet to handle those (laughs) moguls. So dad was tall and lanky, and he was the most graceful skier to see on the slopes. I could pick him out from a mile away. He was fun to ski with. He wasn't an aggressive skier. He didn't push us into racing or any of that. He just wanted us to enjoy the sport to the best that we could.
7: I think that's how you get people interested in a sport, that you don't make them feel like they're already failing from the get-go. I so appreciate that. And,
8: you know, that is something that the Packer Grader made possible. It not only made skiing accessible to the beginners and, and more enjoyable for them, it also brought... A new way of skiing, some ease for the handicap program.
7: In other words, this made it possible for those with disabilities to ski.
8: Correct. And he was inspired by my uncle, Bill. Bill had contracted polio at 19 and was not able to ski. So Bill was given some handicap ski lessons in snowmass. That inspired my dad he started the handicap program at Winter Park, and I talked to my Uncle Bill about it, and he said it was such a gift. He said it was a miraculous gift, and he was able to ski for the next 25 years until polio came back later in his life. And
7: We we take for granted adaptive skiing, but this would have been a big deal back then.
8: Look where we've come.
7: Yeah. Yes. Kat, thanks so much for talking about your dad with us.
8: You're so welcome. Thank you for having me.
7: Kat Bradley Bennett of Longmont, speaking with Ryan
0: Warner about our late father, Steve Bradley. He was a longtime director of Winter Park and inventor of an early snow grooming machine. And that's our show. Thanks to Daniel Mesher, Alexandra McMahon, and Shauna Lewis, director Michelle P. Fulcher and audio engineers Michael Hughes and Shane Rumsey. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.